The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Countdown to the first presidential debate. Can you believe it's only a couple of days away? Plus, stocks whipsaw as traders weigh odds of a stimulus. What's going on with the stimulus? All of that, plus Democrats crafting a new fiscal stimulus bill. We've got a lot to get through. President Trump refusing to commit to a peaceful power peaceful power transfer post-election. All of that, you believe? You know... We're a couple of days away from the first presidential debate. Coming up, we're going to check in with the lawmaker down in in Florida, uh, just another battleground state. Yesterday, we we dipped into uh, former governor of Arizona, another key battleground state, Chan Brewer. And these battleground states, I mean, the polls are just up and down, up and down. Every day I wake up, I check Morning Consult. It's one of the many things I read every morning, but Morning Consult. You know, I check their polls and whatnot, and they've been really ahead of what I think is one of the most important stories. And Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Surveillance with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrell always asked me about it. The shy Trump voters. The shy Trump voters. And let me tell you something, folks. I'm related to some of them. I come from a very politically diverse family. So I know it's real, but it's hard to quantify. It's hard for the political scientists to quantify the shy Trump voters in Arizona, in Florida, in Pennsylvania. That's why I am uh, thrilled to wa- welcome to the program Dr. Kyle Drop. He's a PhD. Kyle Drop. He's co-founder and chief research officer of Morning Consult. Kyle, welcome to the program. You've released a white paper about the shy Trump voters. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Tell us what tell us what you found. Thanks so much, Kevin. Well, we've been tracking the possible existence of shy Trump voters for two presidential cycles now. You know, in late. 2015, we looked at thousands of Republican primary voters and found that uh, then-candidate Trump did better anonymously online than he did on the phone. Then in late 2016, right before the presidential election, we uh, repeated it, and we found that there was no overall uh, effect that is uh, then-president or then-candidate Trump did about as well on phone as online. And fast forward to today, four years later, we interviewed about 2,500 voters and we asked them the exact same questions on phone and online. And we found that uh, President Trump and Vice President Biden do equally well on phone and online. And this suggests that there are few shy Trump voters in the current uh, electorate when we're looking nationally. Now, there are some interesting follow-up findings when you look at uh, income, and certainly many adults answer questions either on the phone with others uh, versus online anonymously. 
differently on matters like discrimination uh, or race or views toward the police protesters. So, so this is interesting because when we look at the data set of online polls versus the phone polls, it's it's really interesting as it relates to if people are embarrassed to say that there's a candidate that they're voting for. What did you find on that regard? Oh, of course. And that's a great question. I know that if I zoom out a little bit, we've been doing about 4,500 interviews every day nationally in our political tracking. And so every day nationally and in most of the key states, we're asking that head-to-head question on Biden uh, and Trump. And I would say the most common question question I've been getting asked is regularly whether there are hidden or shy uh, Trump-type voters. And, you know, the results in our study are are pretty conclusive. Uh, Vice President Biden has a similar lead, regardless of whether you ask people on the phone or online. It looks the same, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 uh, points nationally. Now, we are seeing that Adults in households that earn 75K or more, there does seem to be a little bit of a difference. For example, Vice President Biden does better on the phone among these more well-to-do adults than he does uh, online in our findings. There's a couple of reasons that I I might suggest that, but it could be that, you know, more well-to-do people are socializing with people who might be more uh, pro-Biden. I would also highlight that maybe the most striking finding in the study is how large differences can be when you're asking somebody about a question in public or with a person than when you're asking somebody online. For example, we found that uh, voters were about 10 points more likely to say there's discrimination against uh, Hispanic Americans on the phone versus online. And similarly, about 10 percent more likely to say there's discrimination against black Americans uh, and uh, 20 points more likely to say there's discrimination against Jewish Americans. Why is that? Why do you think that is? I mean, what is the what is the social what do the social scientists tell us about that? Dr. Kyle Drop, he's co-founder and chief research officer, Morning Consult. Uh, he's on the line. Kyle, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, it all it all boils down to something they call social desirability bias. Now, uh, you can social. This let's by, let's wait. This bears repeating. Social desirability bias. Social desirability bias. Okay, let's pay attention, folks, because this is important. Go ahead, Kyle. Okay, so sometimes there's a a distinction between what you have in your mind, your true view, and what you may say to somebody else. And social desirability bias is this tendency for people to state socially acceptable or more popular answers when they're asked a question rather than their true view. We see it in all cases. If you ask somebody how often they go to the gym, uh, whether they're watching the local news uh, each night, in fact, even sometimes whether they're going to vote things that people expect you to do or that maybe good citizens do, people are going to over-report whether they do those things when they're asked in public or asked in front of uh, friends or uh, people. Now, you know, at Morning Consult, we're interviewing about 20,000 people every day around the globe, and almost all the interviews we're doing are online and anonymous. And we, we sincerely believe that we overcome these sort of biases because people are able to provide their true, authentic views in a private fashion in a private setting. So, uh, you know, I kind of close there by saying the more you can take to reduce uncertainty about the questions that you're asking, the better it can be and the more confidence we have in the info that we're collecting. You know, I just got to say social desirability uh, bias. 
We don't have that in Delco, Kyle, where I grew up. We just tell it like it is. We say it like it is. You know, we just say if we did something, we don't. This is why people love me and loathe me is because I, you know, I, I, I say we say what's on our minds. You know, it's a bunch of Philadelphia. You, you should do your polls in Delaware County, Kyle. And I'm telling you, you should do a focus group on Delco because I'm telling you, you will. Be, we will be off the charts. Off the charts. Okay, Kyle, before I let you go, I got two minutes left. Uh, tell us about right now where China factors into this because I always uh, talk to your, to your uh, employees about this and your, and your colleagues just about how this really is a nonpartisan issue. The Americans are very, very distrusting of China, both on the left and on the right. What do we know? Oh, this is a central question to what we're tracking. Let me mention a few things. So over the past few years, if you look a few years back, China was not popular among Americans. About half of Americans had a negative view of China. However, today, about 7 in 10 Americans have a negative view of China. Wow. And even wow. more Republicans, and even more Republicans, in fact, have an unfavorable view. Now, if, if you look even broader, so we're doing uh, daily tracking in about 15 countries around the world. And if you ask average adults in each of these countries whether they have a positive or negative view of each other country, China, in fact, does the worst among people in Australia, among people in, in Japan, among people in South Korea, even among uh, uh, adults in India. So China, in, not just in the United States, but globally has a more uh, polarizing reputation. And so, you know, this is just one question. Do you have a positive or negative view about um, China? But it is certainly infusing uh, the debate. And we're, of course, tracking uh, not just what people think of countries, but what people think of, you know, the key companies that are associated with uh, China, and of course, all of the issues associated with it, whether it's privacy or uh, data security or intellectual property considerations. Human so, rights abuses know, with the we're... Uyghurs, human rights abuses with the Uyghurs, or how they kicked out a Australian news anchor, or the expansion on the Indian-China border and the Himalayans. I mean, there's a lot of reasons people are mistrusting of China. But Kyle, we got to leave it there. I really appreciate your insights, Kyle. Thank you so much. Seriously, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, appreciate uh, the time as well. I I'm telling you, folks, if you, you got to read the Morning Consult. All their data is just so on point. Kyle Drop, he's co-founder and chief research officer of the Morning Consult. They do just brilliant, brilliant work. Read this white paper on the shy Trump voters, if you have a minute. It's about 13 pages, and uh, it's, you can find it online at Morning Consult. Kyle Drop, everybody. Coming up, we check in on the markets, what's going on in the markets today, uh, and the need for more fiscal stimulus. They want more fiscal stimulus. Everybody wants it. Are they going to get it? Democrats are at, back at the negotiating table. We'll dive into that as well. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I had a great breakfast at the Hey Adams today, so I feel like I'm going to have a good day. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Happy birthday, Bruce Springsteen, the boss. It's his birthday. We love Bruce Springsteen on the show. I told Marty Shanker that in my Bloomberg interview for this job. Uh, anyway, happy birthday to Bruce Springsteen. Michael Reagan's on the line. He is a senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. Michael, are you a Bruce Springsteen fan? Uh, absolutely, Kevin. I'm a Jersey guy now. Born in Pennsylvania, but a, but a Jersey guy. But I hate to do this to you, buddy. His birthday was yesterday. Uh, no, hey, correction. Correction. I have to issue a I, correction. I'm like the markets. We, I'm entering correction think, territory. See, I'm making jokes about the markets. Look at that, Bloomberg. I, uh, uh, yeah, my bad. It was his birthday yesterday. Go ahead. What's your favorite Bruce song? I think it should be, I, it should be a birthday week as far as I'm con- yes. concerned. I think we, we, we could support that here in Jersey. But, yeah, as, as you point out, uh, correction in the stock market, almost. I mean, we're flirting with that 10%. Drop from the last record uh, on September 2nd for the S&P 500. And I, it makes me wonder if that level, um, there's a few sort of technical levels. Uh, I hate to bore people to death talking about them, but they're kind oh. of important when looking, looking at the market today. I think that 10% yeah. drop is one of them. Also, it's right near that 3230 level in the S&P 500. That's where we closed at the end of uh, 2019. And you also have the 100-day moving average right around there. So if you add all those three together, I suspect there is some buy orders clustered at some or all of those levels that might ex- uh, help explain why the market stabilized a bit today. But at the same time, there was uh, a lot of news out of your world that people yeah. were talking about. Um, Pelosi and, and Stephen Mnuchin uh, getting back to the negotiating table. Um I think that, that drip feed of news kind of t- turned later in the day when we learned that the Democrats were now still looking at a $2.4 trillion stimulus package. In other words, it doesn't sound like they're giving uh, m- much of an inch to, to the Republicans who want a, a much smaller package. So I think the market is kind of, kind of really trying to absorb all that news and digest it and, and not really sure what to make of it, not really sure whether or not we're actually closer to any sort of stimulus deal. And the lack of that stimulus deal, Kevin, is really, I think, the story of September, why we've seen this almost 10% drop since the beginning of September. Well, you just teed it up so well, right? I mean, I, I look at it, you got to like go through the daily checklist in terms of what the volatility and investors are, are really eyeing up. Let's start with Larry Kudlow, because this, the stock market is recovering from losses earlier in the day. Traders initially reacting to Thursday's unemployment report. You've got the Labor Department reporting that... 870,000 Americans filed for unemployment benefits for the first time last week. That's slightly higher than was expected, and it's a small increase over the prior week. I, I, still, I still cringe every time I, I have to do this once a week because it's, it, it's still above the peak levels in, in the 2008 crash, which is just alarming to anyone who, you know, all of us who experienced the 2008 crash and, and, and the impacts that that had on families. So it's just these numbers are almost, they are, Unreal. They feel unreal, but they're very real. Take a listen to what Larry Kudlow had to say about that, the latest round of economic indicators on that. Here he is. I'm in the V-shaped recovery camp. I think all the recent data, we had very good home sales numbers again, actually new home sales strong, and then a day or two ago, existing home sales were strong. That's another one of the Vs. But the home sales, I mean, aren't the home sales strongs because aren't the home sales strong because of the low interest rates? You know what I mean? I mean, it's uh, almost like there's a smorgasbord and, a, and it, it's like a puzzle that we got to put together. 
Right, absolutely. The the ultra-low interest rates and also that bottleneck, I think, of activity when most of the economy was shut down earlier in the year. We're still working through sort of that pent-up uh, real estate action that, that would have happened earlier in the year. Uh, but you make a great point about the jobless claims, Kevin. I mean, people had sort of been looking at these numbers uh, over the last months with very much a, a a glass half full approach saying, well, they're, they're moving in the right direction. They're, they're back below a million. A little bit of an upside surprise today, like you said, 870,000 uh, versus the survey expected uh, 840,000. So at this point, not moving in the right direction anymore. And I think it does sort of underline, uh, put an underline over the idea that the market is starting to really have a bit of a tantrum over the lack of progress on this fiscal stimulus deal. I mean, it was right. sort of su- surprising to watch over the summer. They seemed to be very optimistic that, that, that the deal would be made. Then Congress comes back in early September, and it's just nowhere to be seen. And I think that's really uh, coming home to roost right now for the market. Well, Michael Reagan's on the line. He's senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. I mean, he's just no one's more brilliant than Michael. You know, I I keep saying this to Jonathan Farrell. I there's going to be a stimulus. No one that I talk to, whether it's Matt Gates or or the uh, the Democratic Socialist staffers, they are all saying there's going to be stimulus. It's just a question of when, and it's just and and the when here are the gold barks this week and March, literally. And so the centrists want it, the far right wants it, the far left wants it. It's just there's a lot of moving pieces. But I, I want to play for you because uh, some of the Fed officials, because they're all calling all calling for more stimulus, to your point. And we've heard from the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, Richard Clarity, Robert Kaplan, James Bullard. I mean, all of them on where the U.S. economy stands. And both Chairman Powell and Vice Chairman Clarity are urging more fiscal stimulus. While Kaplan and Bullard are saying no, which is kind of nuanced, but I want to get your take on that as well. Anyway, let's listen to this sot string. About 11 million jobs have returned, but there's still a deep hole. We could start to approach uh, an unemployment rate certainly below 4%, say 35 to 4%. I think that it is likely that, that more fiscal support will be needed. And so, yes, additional fiscal support will likely be needed. I do think small businesses um, would benefit from more PPP support. A lot of that is going to depend on how will we manage this virus, fiscal policy, and a whole range of other decisions. I don't think there's as much of an imperative about a new fiscal package as there might have been uh, you know, in July. So that's James Bullard. The last voice there was James Bullard. He's say he's he's the odd man out. Why? Why is that? Well, I, to me, the, the big takeaway is when you hear um, so many of the federal officials talk about the need for fiscal stimulus. It's kind of a concession uh, to the notion that they they've pretty much done all they can do. When you think of the other steps the Fed could possibly take, people were wondering if maybe they'd consider negative interest rates. They've pretty much taken that off the table. There was a lot of disappointment from the last meeting that they didn't commit to sort of uh, some quantitative easing to buy some longer-dated treasuries uh, to keep those rates down. So I think you know when the market hears the Fed talking about the need for more fiscal stimulus, the, the notion, uh, I think the way they interpret it is the Fed is kind of done pretty much all it can for now, and there's not much more that they're willing or, or able to do. Um, and, you know, Kevin, the, the one thing I would uh, add to the conversation is, and, and you probably know this better than me, but a lot of the investing sources I've talked to have pointed out that the 
the battle over the Supreme Court now has sort of shifted the focus to that right. issue and maybe made the political situation, the polarization, uh, a little bit worse than it was. The idea that um, yeah. they're going to be fighting over the Supreme Court uh, nomination rather and can than— Can I tell uh, you something, the oxygen in the room yep. argument? And I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't buy that anymore. I really don't yeah. because here's why. They passed the CR— and they did that literally a day or two after the the RBG passing, and they're kicking the can to December 11th, and they're creating another artificial cliff. I I think that where there's a will, there's a way to get money. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, especially in Washington D.C. Hey, Michael, I wish we were at the Stone Pony. I wish we were listening <laughs> to to some Bruce in Asbury Park. I was in Asbury Park a couple of months pre-pandemic, of course. I, that town is beautiful. You know, it's it's oh, it's absolutely. especially this time of year and what they do for the holidays. I hope they still do it. Anyway, Michael Reagan, senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. Thank you for joining us. More coming up next. I'm Kevin Cerulli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We're just days away from the first presidential debate. We're heading to Cleveland next week. What's it going to happen? Is there a shakeup on the campaign trail? We got some polls out. We're going to figure out what impact all this is happening. Plus, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi huddling with Democrats on a new fiscal stimulus deal. All of that plus the latest on SCOTUS Watch. When will we get that announcement? What will it mean? We got a lot to get through. Let's get set. We're going to talk about the the transition to power coming up uh, later on in the program. But I I really want to start the issue this show off in our A block with with the economy because I I really think we got some fascinating developments both both on the fiscal stimulus front as well as from Fed officials this week about the need for there to be some more fiscal stimulus. Plus, oh yeah, the Labor Department reported earlier today that 870,000 Americans filed for unemployment benefits for the first time last week. That's slightly higher than was expected and a small increase over the prior week. You know, it's still remarkable, folks, when you think of just the the millions of Americans who are uh, still filing for unemployment. We begin with that as the backdrop for a conversation we'll have now with Tyler Deaton, a Republican strategist and fundraiser, president of Allegiance Strategies, and Laura Fink, a Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications out in sunny San Diego. Laura, how's, how's San Diego these days? It's so gorgeous today. It is the light in all of the coronavirus uh, sadness. So right, it's, the jealous. weather is great. We're jealous. All right. House Democrats, meanwhile, we got this 870,000 Americans filing for unemployment. House Democrats have started drafting a stimulus proposal of roughly $2.4 trillion that they can take into possible negotiations with the White House and Senate Republicans, according to Democratic officials. My colleagues, Billy House, Eric Wasson, 
report on the Bloomberg terminal. Tyler, is it too little, too late, or do you think we're still? Are you still optimistic that we're going to get some fiscal relief before the end of the year? I guess is the better time frame to say. Oh sure, I'm wildly optimistic we're going to get stimulus by the end of the year. It's just not going to be until after the election. Nothing is moving until the lame duck. I I think it's important for people to know that the the cut in the price tag here, the fact that Pelosi found $1 trillion to reduce her package, is entirely by a change to the timeline of her fiscal stimulus. And so this really isn't a cut. Um, she still wants the same amount of money. She's just now finally saying that she's willing to spend it in a shorter chunk and then ask for more later. So I still think that this deal, as of right now, is dead on arrival with the Republican Senate majority. But I also think that this is probably helping us find a solution when we do get to the lame duck session and the elections are behind us. Well, I think it's, I think it is, I, you know, I think when you look at it at face value, now it allows Laura for Democrats to get out there if they pass this thing next week and say, Hey, you know, we, we, we lowered it by about a trillion dollars and $2.4 trillion stimulus. Now they can stay have some, some new, uh, some new, uh, I hate I don't want to use the word, but I got to say it, talking points to, to get through, Laura, in terms of the, the, the public side of the negotiations. I, I think that's true, but I think that was a talking point they possessed long ago, because not only did they put forth their package, pass it through their deliberative body, which is something the Republicans have failed to do. I think the other issue is that that Nancy Pelosi in negotiations was willing to meet Republicans in the middle on the last round of negotiations by by scaling back their proposal. So, you know, they, they own this conversation. The question is, how effective is it going to be, you know, on the trail or will they say a pox on both their houses? I think there will be a little bit of that. Uh, but the reality is, as you said, with the unemployment numbers increasing, more and more people are going to be looking at that and seeing who is taking action, who's moving on this, and why isn't it important to the other side? Well, Ben Cardin, Senator Ben Cardin, Democrat of Maryland, Ben Cardin said, quote, I don't think we are going to get it done before whatever break we have before the elections, end quote. And Senator Cardin is, is very in the know, especially in the upper echelons of the Senate. And, you know, for, for I, I see that timeline. Uh, you've got Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby. I, I see that timeline. You know, they're, they're, they're downplaying the need, or the, down, not the need, they're downplaying the expectation, rather, Tyler Deaton, of this happening before the election. But when I listen to Fed officials, one after another, Fed Chair Jay Powell, Vice Chairman Clarida, Bullard, Kaplan, I mean, they're all saying one after the other that, that there needs to be some type of support. So it really is remarkable. And in fact, we actually have, and I want to play it. I want to play it again because it's important. We have all the Fed officials this week who have said essentially that there needs to be more fiscal support. Let's take a listen to this. Here are all the Fed officials. About 11 million jobs have returned, but there's still a deep hole. We could start to approach uh, an unemployment rate certainly below 4%, say 35 to 4%. I think that it is likely that, that more fiscal support will be needed. And so, yes, additional fiscal support will likely be needed. I do think small businesses um, would benefit from more PPP support. A lot of that is going to depend on how will we manage this virus, fiscal policy, and a whole range of other decisions. I don't think there's as much of an imperative about a new fiscal package as there might have been uh, you know, in July. 
Tyler, so the Republicans are looking at James Bullard. That was the last voice you heard there, uh, and they're they're agreeing with him. But they're still, but everyone else is saying, and including Bullard. I mean, they're saying that there needs to be some type of more support. I just don't understand why they don't want to get this done before the election. It would it would seem that especially if you're an incumbent running in Congress, that you would want this before the election, Tyler. Well, I'll tell you what. There's about a million different angles we could take on this. We could talk about the fact that they agree on PPP money, that Republicans and Democrats agree on some expansion to unemployment insurance. We can right. talk about all of the things where they agree. And I have to tell you, Kevin, that uh, not to be cynical, but I think that it's both leaders in both chambers, Speaker Pelosi and Leader McConnell, have to be comfortable with this being a win-win. And I think that that's actually what's holding us up is that what nobody do you mean? wants that's to smart. give the other side. Elaborate, elaborate. Nope. Nobody right now wants the other side to be able to come out of this saying that they got something. Right. And so until people are okay with the American worker winning and especially the unemployed American workers winning, then we're just not going to find a solution because everybody's afraid that, oh, this will make President Trump look good. Oh, this will make House Democrats look good. Oh, this will make Mitch McConnell look good. We've got to get out of that mindset. And the sooner we do, the better it is for the country, because I would tell you I could go line by line through every version of the House deals and the Senate deals. And there is 80 to 90 percent agreement. And they're really letting a few details jam this up. But even more than that, and that's what I think is important for people to know, is that they just don't want anyone else to get any credit for a good deal going through before the election. Hey, Tyler, you know what I think? I think they all need to go out to sunny San Diego. They need to sit on the beach, socially distance, and they need to hammer out a deal. I think I think people on the beach, Laura... I think they need I think people have forgotten what a vacation feels like. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I don't I don't know if it's a vacation or if it's that they've forgotten, you know, what the what deal making looks like in Washington, which has been sorely <laughs> absent. That said, I don't know that I agree with my colleague that they're that they're that close. I mean, I think that the, the ticket price is is still very far apart. I think there are some essential issues on the Democratic side, including, you know, funding for election protections at levels that are going to be impactful. And I also think that what we don't talk about a lot is the aid to the states. You know, there's obviously right. the PPP to small businesses, but that aid to states is going to lead to layoffs. Right, right now, municipalities, that whether they're run by end states, whether they're run by Democrats or Republicans, are, are in a cash, cash crunch, and there's only one place to go, and that's the federal government in this crisis. So, so by not providing that aid, which, you know, the president has been reticent uh, about right. doing and so did so and so did half about half the pocket. Uh, right. the other thing we're yeah, going to wait, we got We got to leave it there. Save it for after the jump. I'm Kevin Cerulli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerulli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I, I totally messed up yesterday. I thought Bruce Springsteen's birthday was today. It was yesterday. And you know, I love Bruce, and here I am, you know, doing my show. Literally in my mind, I'm like, okay, remember, acknowledge the, the boss's birthday on, on today, but it was really yesterday. So anyway, happy belated birthday, Bruce Springsteen. All right, uh, I want to welcome back. I want to talk about the Supreme Court, but I, 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 I had to, we got, I ran out of time. Mismanagement of the clock on my, on my part. Tyler Deaton's with us. He's a Republican insider. Laura Fink, a Democratic insider. Laura, I had to. I, I wanted you to finish your thoughts. So what were you saying about the fiscal stimulus and how? Look, I mean, you're still saying Democrats and Republicans are a world apart. 
They are. And I think that some of that comes, just if I'm going to give the opposition a little credit, uh, Mitch McConnell has a divided caucus. And there are some hardliners in there that don't want to see a stimulus pass at all. And so he's going to need to cut a deal that that, that works with both Democrats and Republicans. So he's got a numbers problem. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, a, a meet in the middle is no longer a, a tenable negotiating position, which leaves the Democrats in a in a tough spot. So that's all I was saying. All right. Let's let's uh, let's I, we got to talk about the Supreme Court, because as I mentioned on Saturday, President Trump, late Saturday afternoon, President Trump is going to announce the uh, is going to announce the his 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 selection to replace RBG to the to the Supreme Court. Take a listen to what he said earlier today when asked by reporters where things stand. Here's the president of the United States talking about the Supreme Court. I'm getting very close to a final choice. All right, so it, it, you know the, all the rumblings are that it's going to be Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court. Tyler, from a political standpoint, what does this pick mean? Should it be Judge? At Amy Coney Barrett, what would it mean uh, for Republicans? It, it almost doesn't matter who he picks. The pick is going to be polarizing, and it's going to make red states redder, and it's going to make blue states bluer. And I think the biggest impact that this will have is not on the presidential race necessarily, but on the various U.S. Senate races that are happening around the country. So if you're a Republican senator voting to confirm this judge in a red state, this is good for you. Um, if you're a Republican senator voting to confirm this judge from a blue state, this is probably bad for you. But it's going to be most interesting, I think, for Senator Susan Collins, who is a Republican senator, who has said that she's opposed to this process moving forward. She's up in Maine right now. She's the Republican representing the bluest state in the U.S. Senate uh, that's held by a Republican. It's about a D plus five. And I think that for her, this is really going to complicate things. Uh, but I also think she's navigating it as well as she can. All right. So what does it mean for the presidential, Tyler? I think for the presidential race, it's exactly what I'm saying. It's, it's polarizing. If you're an ideological voter, you're already a Republican or a Democrat. From all the polling that I've seen, independent voters don't vote based on the Supreme Court. And so I think that independent voters in places like Pennsylvania or Florida, they're still voting on the issues. We're all hearing about the economy, the pandemic, health care. Uh, the, the sort of issues that dominate the middle. I think that this is something that's just going to drive up the base on both sides. I don't know that it changes the turnout for either one party in particular. I think it's just going to make turnout much higher across the board as both sides ramp up and remember how much they care about the Supreme Court. Laura, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to pick up on something that Tyler just so brilliantly laid out there, which is the impact it has on pulling red states further red for the Senate races and blue states further blue and complicating people like Senator Susan Collins. Because I think back to post-Judge Kavanaugh, right? That was a very contentious nomination process. And Republicans picked up seats in the midterms in the Senate. Democrats picked up seats in the House. Uh, but in the Senate, where things, you know, where they where they obviously have the confirmation for for the Supreme Court, it went more red, Laura. So how do you think that what, what you know, when you when you talk to 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 your political orbit, how are they what, what are the political scientists saying on this? 
Well, I think it's what I, I would say to beware the women. I mean, like RBG was an icon of both, not just the feminist movement, but even women that don't even consider themselves feminists recognize the work that she and the, the list that she carried for women over history, voting rights, workers' rights. Um, this is an energy boost to the left in a way that the Supreme Court doesn't generally, they're sort of asymmetric because the right tends to be energized around Supreme Court picks with conservative Christian voters, et cetera. Um, and the left is not as motivated as much. Well, that changes this year. And, I, you know, I just want to comment on the Senate races because I don't know what internals Cory Gardner, Marsha McSally, uh, you know, and, and Tom Tillis are seeing, but I, I feel like they've given up because this is definitely going to have an impact on those purple states uh, that, that where this is an issue because we see, obviously, it's the Supreme Court vote. The voters care less about process, but they do care about the substance that they're potentially going to lose the right to choose, the right to access contraception, the right to, you know, equal pay um, on the women's side, the right to re-resurrecting the Voting Rights Act and defending it uh, once again, uh, the right to organize in their workplace. I mean, those are all compelling issues, and there's an energy around them. So I don't know. That it's just a, we don't know how it's going to play out definitively, but I just don't, what I truly don't understand is the, the, the senators that are in those swing states immediately coming and saying that they're going to vote on the sick. You know, it is it is quite remarkable, Tyler, especially I would add health care to that list. You know, I mean, because oh, absolutely because you, you look at because health care. Uh, you know, for Republicans and Democrats, you know, they very much disagree on it. It's a very polarizing issue. But one of the most important dates, November 10th, November 10th, November 11th, when they're scheduled, Tyler, to have the opening arguments on the Affordable Care Act, a massive case. And listen, everybody always asks me, well, what, what, what is the rush for, for Republicans for getting the, the judge, uh, for getting the, the, the justice on the court, for filling the seat so quickly? I say the opening arguments of the ACA case, because if the judges aren't on the court for the opening arguments, then they can't participate. And that's scheduled. That case, the ACA case, the healthcare case, is scheduled for November 10th, November 11th, likely going to happen then. So that's why there's this, this, this urgency. You know, Tyler, we only have like a minute left, less than a minute. So just quickly, can you just weigh in on, on just how healthcare is going to be so incredibly important for the presidential election as well? Healthcare is the top issue in the race, regardless of what happens at the Supreme Court. Um, healthcare was already the top issue in some of these battleground states before uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And so I agree. I think that Laura has a point that if Democrats are able to turn the Supreme Court vacancy into a health care issue, um, then that would be smart on their part. I also think, though, that, you know, for, for any side of the coin, you've got right. another side, which is that nothing is more unifying, mobilizing right. for Republican voters than having a judicial nomination all the way up to the Supreme Court vacancy. Yeah. I have not seen the Republican Party right. as energized as it is right now. All right, there's the music again, Kevin's poor clock management. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to have a complete preview of the Supreme Court. We're going to have a, some special analysis uh, as we await for the President of the United States to name his selection to pick the replacement for uh, the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, that announcement is coming on um, 
Saturday in the five o'clock Eastern hour, reportedly. I'm I'm very thrilled to welcome to the program someone who has a, a, a deep deep knowledge of the Supreme Court of race relations in our country, someone who is, uh, you know, an award-winning author. He is, in 2006, he received the Bradley Prize for his contributions to the study of race in America. In 2004, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal, the National Humanities Medal, a huge honor. Uh, And uh, his name is Dr. Shelby Steele. Uh, And Dr. Steele, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, I I really appreciate you making the time for me. You know, I, I just want to well, thank you. Well, I just want to get your perspective in terms of of this particularly heightened, polarized, politicized time. I mean, a, a Supreme Court pick is always always political, but it, it feels different. This this pick feels different, just given how close we are to an election, and, and also given you know what, what what happened last night in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy. Well, a lot going on, yeah. um, and uh, and hard to you, the outlines are not altogether clear at this point. But you can you can see certain things. I mean, the, the Supreme Court uh, struggle is is um, I think more difficult these days because it's more cultural, um, as cultural as it is political. Um, and what kind of culture are we today? And uh, the left has one point of view, the right has another point of view. They're, both sides are deeply entrenched, uh, and uh, so the, the, it's, it is really um, a kind of warfare. I mean, it's, it's really a, a, a serious conflict. I guess it's better than a civil war, certainly, uh, but it, it, uh, it's kind of a nonviolent civil war. Well, you know, I want to I want to unpack something that you just said, which which I I hadn't heard it described that way, which is this feels like a more cultural pick, and 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 I I you know I've never heard it described that way, but I just had an aha moment because the light bulb just went off. It does. This feels that the that the culture debate around a host of, of of various issues are all conflating and being thrust upon. The Supreme Court. Can you just unpack that for me and, and put it in a historical context? Because you do that so brilliantly. Put it in a historical context of of unrest that we've seen in the 1970s, uh, to some extent in the 1990s, and at other points in our country's history. Well, I, you know, I think, uh, boy, it's, uh, it's the 60s. I think changed everything, and. Um, this was an era where America was confronted with all sorts of protests, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, uh, and there emerged from that era the idea that America was in need of real redemption, uh, that somehow we, we had, it was honorable that we acknowledged our past, uh, but we now needed to redeem ourselves. And a kind of liberalism grew out of that, an activist, social engineering uh, sort of liberalism. And we wanted a Supreme Court that would, that would sanction things like affirmative action, for example. Uh, and um, th- those were the big battles. Well, we're sort of still uh, in that kind of uh, uh, culture war where uh, both sides... Um, we on the on the on the right. Uh, we want originalists. We want people who want to, who take the Constitution uh, literally, uh, who don't want 
um, you know, fashionable ideas to to, have, to be taken seriously. Rather, they want the the fundamental principles of the Constitution upheld and so forth. Um, so, how, and then how does that really, you know, play down on the street, so to speak? How does with with actual candidates and what do they believe and where do they stand and and how's that going to take our our society forward? Um, so it's it's a, it's an interesting interesting time. Uh, look forward to it, actually. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Dr. Shelby Steele's on the line. He is the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, he is the author of, of numerous books, uh, and including <clears throat> the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1990. Uh, he is an award-winning author uh, in the general nonfiction category for the, the award-winning book, as I mentioned, The Content of Our, Our Character, A New Vision of Race in America. Uh, you know, and I guess... The follow-up here is at a time in which millions of Americans of all different political stripes, uh, Dr. Steele, feel a very strong opinion about race. Uh, And and you see it in the streets of Washington, D.C. You saw it last night in Louisville, Kentucky. You see it in 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 all of and and that's that's real emotion. And so in no way do I want to ask a question that that diminishes the real emotion and the real experiences that that millions of Americans have experienced, that their families have experienced. How do we as a country get to a place where we're not screaming at each other, but actually Mm -hmm. working together to to enact change in a concrete way that is both structural uh, for our institutions, but also respectful of the millions of Americans who have had these experiences. Right. Well, I think one thing we have to, uh, I grew up in the civil rights era and, um, the countdown has begun this May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar economic forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar ministry of commerce and industry and media city Qatar and premier sponsor Q and B. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Um, title of my first book on race was The uh, Content of Our Character right. as Opposed to the Color of Our Skin. We have to get back to this idea that race in itself inherently means nothing. It means nothing. It's something that human be- we human beings pick up and trade on, and we try to assign different meanings to it and different levels of importance. And we, we always, whenever we, we, we touch race, whenever we pick it up, we are usually using it as a means to power. Whether that is the, a segregationist of the 19th century or some, uh, someone from Black Lives Matter today, uh, we're picking up race and using it as a means to power. That's the essential evil of race. That's its danger. That's why it's so divisive, because I'll take race and make it mean what I want it to, to mean, and you use it to what, and, and there we are. We're gonna, there's no, no option, really, but to have conflict and fight. Uh, we have to get back, I think, to a commitment in our democracy that race should mean nothing, it should win you nothing. It should cost you nothing. 
We want it out of our out of our purview, out of our society, and we'll all be better for it. We need to relate as citizens rather than as members of of a race. There's nothing sacred about a race. It doesn't. Well, it really doesn't mean anything. I've only got you for two more minutes, but but you know, and and that's why I, I I'm thinking of Louisville, Kentucky, and of course uh, Breonna Taylor's murder, and mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why bipartisan policy changes when you've got people like Senator Rand Paul working with progressives on a no-knock ban. I don't I don't understand why Washington D.C. This is uh, this is a, a, a constructive criticism for the institutions of Congress. I don't understand why they can't take bipartisan legislation and quickly move it. And and, and I, is that is that gotten worse as time has gone on or has that always been the case, Dr. Shelby Steele? Well, I think it's it's uh, it's pretty bad right now. Uh, in any case, and it, 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 both sides are so ideological now, and ideologically driven uh, that our actual real problems recede. Uh, we've got a profoundly serious problem in education in America, right. and we never even talk about it in any serious way. There's no. No movement for change or improvement or or anything really. Uh, yet it it it's beginning to really corrode the our ability to communicate within uh, as, right. a, as a nation. Uh, and when you when everything is ideological, then you know you you're on a level where nothing is really real, and it's. Uh, Wow. It's very, it's very difficult. Let's just leave it there. Dr. Shelby Steele, uh, that bears repeating. When everything is ideological, nothing is really seems real. Dr. Shelby Steele, come back anytime on the program. Thank you so much, sir, for making time for me today. Dr. Shelby Steele is the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the award-winning author. He got the National Book Critics Circle Award 1990 for the content of our character. I'm Kevin Cirilli. More coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm starting to pack for Cleveland. I'll be headed there for the first presidential debate on Tuesday. On Tuesday. So you will have continuing coverage all next week on that front as well. It's time now for my favorite part of the program, What is on Your Radar? And I do that with two two very, very insidery politicos. Tyler Deaton, Republican strategist and fundraiser, president of Allegiance Strategies, and Laura Fink, She's a Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications out in San Diego. Laura, what is on your radar? Oh, God. So I'm looking at Pennsylvania right now and the vote by mail. We love it. Uh, The (laughs) vote by mail request, which right now there's there's sort of two groups of swing voters, the ones that voted for Trump and may now look to Biden. uh, And then there's also the folks that didn't vote in 2016 that are looking at voting. And and Biden wins those number those that group by and large. So I'm looking at vote by mail requests and Democrats are outpacing Republicans in states like Pennsylvania for the number of voters who didn't vote in 2016, but who are looking to vote in 2020. So that is is something I'm watching for across the states, um, as well as the idea of different ballot provisions like the naked ballots in Pennsylvania, which uh, 
conservatives won a court battle recently that suggests that you have to use both the inner and the outer envelope, the privacy envelope and the mailing envelope. And so that's going to be a struggle. Democrats are going to have to make sure that their voters uh, double up in, uh, in advance of Election Day. Talk about that more, because we've got some time, and I think this is really interesting, because I, I noticed that, too, and I flagged that in Pennsylvania, about how if you vote by mail in Pennsylvania, you have to put it in an envelope, but then put it in another envelope. But just walk us through that issue and, and what Democrats' concerns are about that, uh, and Republicans are, are saying that they, they, they feel that they have to do that to protect the integrity of the ballot. But talk, talk me through what some of the Democratic concerns are about that particular provision. Well, I think the concern is twofold. Um, I, that pun was not intended. But the concern is that, one, that, that it's a voter education issue. I mean, Pennsylvania hasn't had, and a lot of states haven't had broad-scale vote-by-mail. So this is, you know, the voters, are, you know, may not know to use that interior envelope. So you've got to make sure everybody knows exactly how to vote to ensure that their vote is counted and not tossed out. I think having the more provisions you put in place, the more rules you've got to learn, the harder it is uh, for voters that may not be picking every every box you don't want your voters confused so i don't we, we don't have that rule in california we certainly have seen other states i don't think it exists uh in colorado where vote by mail has been in place oregon where vote by mail has been in place uh for quite some time uh so i you know i don't really see the purpose of it but it's you know it's a state-by-state designation so i think i don't know are we going to have naked ballot education out there in pennsylvania but this you know i joke about this because it's kind of a funny word but Really, this is about looking at the nuance of each state and the details that are going to be devilish as campaigns are looking to ensure that their voters get out to vote and that their votes are counted. Wait, Laura, I got to be totally honest right now. One of our producers just said in my, just put in our group chat, wait, didn't you get her pun, the twofold pun? And I didn't... (laughs) I didn't get it, and now I just got it. So the two, I, I, so I'm, I'm a little so slow today. I, I, no, but I now no. I get it. And then in our group chat, everyone got a really good laugh about that because I guess I, I, I missed it. But hey, you know the wordplay. It was very, uh, very good. Okay, that's that's really interesting, and I think it bears repeating, just how each state has different uh, uh, vote by mail laws, and it is incredibly. Uh, different and unique to each state and and the state legislators are coming into effect here so that it's hard it's very hard to track all of the different vote by mail regulations because they are all different and so in the battleground states in particular they're all different okay so that's great that's what's on laura fink's radar tyler deaton what's on your radar well i'm i love that she highlighted that i appreciate that and Look, the vote-by-mail stuff, it is complicated, and I wish that both parties would just disarm a little bit and and focus on making sure every single person can vote and educating them on how to do it. So I love that. I have a question for you, Kevin. Are you a Philadelphia Flyers fan? Yeah, it's Gritty's Gritty's birthday today. That's what I was going to tell you. It's Gritty's birthday. So I got that mixed up with Bruce Springsteen, and I'm a huge Gritty fan. But uh, I, you know, that is is good that that's on your radar. Maybe we can get Gritty on the show. That's on my radar. Well, do you have a policy thing, Tyler? I don't know if Gritty speaks. I think he tweets, but I don't know if he has an actual voice for radio. That thing makes me, I think he's got a face for television, personally. I mean, <laughs> if they put me on air. Right, well, <laughs> I'll tell you. There's, I have, so that's my fun thing on the radar. My serious thing on the radar is I just think people have to remember right now we don't technically have um, an, a, a legally appointed 
Secretary of Homeland Security. And the president has finally nominated this guy, Chad Wolf. His nomination is pending. He had a hearing this week. And I just think it's flying under everybody else's radar. So I want to just highlight that, that we have uh, a pending nomination before the Senate. Um, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee could vote on Mr. Wolf's nomination as soon as next week. And I just think now with everything happening with the Supreme Court, we're getting so close to the elections. I don't know what will come of that. And obviously, if the president is not reelected, then this whole nomination will just go up in smoke. But um, if it doesn't, I think that's just something that's really important for everybody to keep their eye on. This is a very important position. Uh, Mr. Wolf has been a very controversial leader at the Department of Homeland Security. And I don't know that Republicans are going to stick by him forever. It was just revealed this week that there have been maybe some questionable contracts given to a firm that his wife is at. And I would just keep my eye on this. I don't know that he is actually going to make it across the finish line, regardless of the president's election or reelection. Well, can I, can I just ask you, just as a Republican, where do you think President Trump's reelection hopes are right now? I think they're sub 50 percent. Um, I think that I do. I think that, um, you know, just going back to our Supreme Court conversation, I think that, you know, we, we were talking about some of these purple states and there are still purple states. I think that, um, you know, just from what I'm seeing and some of the polling on Senate races, it might be helping him more than hurting him in places like North Carolina and Arizona, because while they are purple states, they still have a reddish hue, and I just I, I wouldn't count him out yet. I think that it's it's certainly not over, and everybody should be voting. People should vote early in person. People should vote by mail. Almost every single battleground state now has uh, both early voting and vote by mail options available to voters with no excuse. Um, that's something we've talked about a lot this year. But I think it's important now to recognize that the only big, somewhat swingy state left that does not have no excuse absentee voting is Texas. Wow. And just to that point, my colleagues Gregory Corti, Bill Allison, and Mario Parker reported on the terminal that President Trump's campaign has canceled $4.5 million in ad buys in key battleground states just this week. Uh, they've canceled uh, uh, television ads in all but three states where the race is close, Arizona, Florida, and Georgia, and his ads have disappeared from must-win states like Ohio and Iowa, where he and Biden are essentially tied. Wow. Uh, the thing that's on my radar is the Justice Department proposing limits to Tech's legal shield. I saw it in the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, Ryan Tracy and Brent Kendall in the Wall Street Journal. The Justice Department proposed to Congress ways to curb longstanding legal protections for Internet companies such as Facebook, Alphabet, and Twitter uh, and force them to shoulder more responsibility for managing content on their platforms. It comes, mind you, as lawmakers on Capitol Hill are you know, thinking about issuing subpoenas for all the big tech CEOs uh, for antitrust cases. So the big tech story has been really on the on the minds of a lot of policymakers in both parties uh, throughout the last couple of days. My thanks to Tyler Deaton. My thanks to Laura Fink. We'll have to get Ben Brody on to walk us through some of the big tech stories. Uh, and uh, thank you to you as well for listening. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Happy birthday, Gritty. Happy belated birthday, Bruce Springsteen. Tomorrow, full Supreme Court watch. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.